Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. With the great rush to the outdoors that we've seen since the COVID pandemic erupted, there have been many calls for more space in the national park system. While there are places in the West that seem to be logical additions to the parks there, that's not always the case in the East. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. So if we wanted more parklands east of the Mississippi, could we gain them somehow? That's a good question, and one that we've been working on here at The Traveler. To help answer that question, we're joined today by Pam Goddard, the Mid-Atlantic Senior Program Director for the National Parks Conservation Association, and Michael Sparks, a writer based in New York City who's been working on the story for us. We'll be back in a minute with Pam and Michael. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. In addition to some of the best rates in the country, Interior Federal Credit Union gives back their members more than other financial institutions in the form of dividends and low or no fees. With higher dividend rates, you can earn more in all your accounts like certificates, money markets, and even a checking account. They focus to make sure that their members aren't being nickel and dimed every time they make a transaction. That is the beauty of Interior Federal Credit Union. Send your bank up, up, up and away and experience the membership difference with Interior Federal Credit Union. Federally insured by NCUA. Nova Scotia, 8,000 miles of coastline dotted with colorful fishing villages, quaint coastal towns, and an abundance of scenic natural beauty. Home to two national parks, Cape Breton Highlands and Kajimakujik. Spend your nights under a canopy of twinkling stars. Spend your days exploring trails, beaches, historical waterways, and tons of cultural and recreational experiences. Visit NovaScotia.com today to start planning your natural getaway. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, Foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the National Park System for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. So if we wanted to increase the National Park System in the eastern half of the United States, could we do that? Are there lands available? While there are plenty of public lands in the West, that's not always the case in the East, which has a few hundred years of more development than the, the Western half of the country does. Pam, I understand that um, you've been looking around the East Coast for the National Parks Conservation Association. Um, is there land that can be added to the park system? There's definitely land that can be added to the park system. There are, although we do not have the vast acreage that the Western states have, we have very important parcels and very important parts of our history that can be added to the national parks. Uh, and I'm happy to provide some examples if you would like. 
Yeah, that'd be great. I think, you know, land for land's sake is one thing, but but land for um, addition to the park system for their cultural, historical, um, whatever reason, um, definitely would merit consideration, I would think. Yes. And so we want to be mindful and when we expand or create new parks that they are deserving and it's important. And there's a number of areas where this exactly has happened. History continues and historic events happen. So Flight 93 became a memorial. It was an important part of our history and it should be preserved, commemorated and become a space for people to visit and learn. We are also finding new history that we want to preserve, protect, and share. And a prime example of that is the Werewakamako property in Virginia. So for hundreds of years, uh, historians try to find out where Chief Powhatan and Algonquin Indians had their confederacy. Where was their national capital? And the search continued for years and years. Several years ago, an attorney and his wife, Bob and Lynn Ripley, bought property on the York River. And they had a dog who would dig up little pieces of this and that. And Lynn would wash it and put it on the kitchen counter. And pretty soon it was quite voluminous. And so she called some some of the university folks in and some historians, and they discovered that their property was the headquarters of Chief Powhatan. So um, archaeologists became very involved. The Park Service worked for a number of years. And in, uh, I think, 2016, that property was purchased to add to the National Park System. And this is right on the Chesapeake Bay, right? Yes, it's on the York River. And the Ripleys still live there. And they have their home. Um, And Park Service is being very mindful about who is telling the story and how it will be shared. So the site is currently not open to the public because it's a sacred ground for a number of tribes. Um, They are having different tribal members come in and do some of the archaeology and decide when and how we will share the story. But that's a phenomenal example of a story of this country's history that should be protected, preserved, and someday shared. But there aren't a lot of those areas in the East, are there? There's not a lot, but there are some. Um, There are some stories that the Park Service was not very good about telling. So when we look back at the history of our national parks, they are primarily to commemorate natural beauty or to share history, but that history was not everybody's history. So in the Eastern states, the National Park Service has made a real concerted effort and NPCA has pushed very hard for this effort to tell stories that have not been told. And examples of that are the Stonewall Inn, which tells the history of LGBTQ plus history of gaining civil rights. The Rosenwald schools, Julius Rosenwald wanted to make sure that African-Americans could go to school. A lot of women's stories were not told. So the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad National Monument was added. So what we are trying to do is look at stories that have not been told and history that has not been protected and preserved and bringing them into the park system. Now, a lot of people, um, as I mentioned at the outset, the, the COVID pandemic is driving people outdoors. They want to find more space. As a result, we're seeing 
some pretty incredible crowds in the national park system. Uh, Great Smoky Mountains just reported uh, more than 14 million people visited the park last year, um, although that's a soft number and questionable. Um, what about um, recreational additions to the, the park system in the east? Are they possible? Yes. In fact, there was an initiative a while back to um, add to the New River Gorge in West Virginia. And that's, a, a, it's, I don't know if you've been there, it's fabulous. It's a beautiful, beautiful site. And um, it's to acknowledge and bring people in, you know, acknowledge the recreational need and bring people in safely. Now, there are definitely going to be some um, pressures, and we know that some parks are, are looking at timed entry, things like that, to ensure that everybody has a great recreational experience in a safe way. I know at Shenandoah National Park, they're looking at um, timed entry to climb Old Rag, which is one of the most heavily visited hike in the park. And so we're supportive of those efforts. We want people to go and we want people to enjoy and be safe. We're also promoting some of the other hikes. You know, Shenandoah is hundreds of thousands of acres. There's a lot of hikes in there. And if you can't do Old Rag, there's, there's plenty of others. You know, I spent some of my formative years um, in West Virginia going to college there, and I was actually a, a raft guide on the New River before it was a national river, and uh, certainly before it was a national park, and so I'm well aware of the beauty there. And if you look a little bit um, north in West Virginia, you know, there's long been discussion of including the Dolly Sods area and the Canadian Valley area into the national park system, and, and that, um, I'm not sure Joe Manchin would go for that, but... Um, you know, that would be a big swath of, of public lands um, for recreation. But um, is that feasible? Well, I think that, you know, the visitation in the Canaan Valley and Dolly Sods is already quite high. And it doesn't have to be a national park to be protected and visited. So our wildlife refuges and our wilderness areas are open to the public. I think that's kind of a big secret that people don't know, although that's not true with Dolly Sods. Um, I've spent years cross-country skiing there at Whitegrass Um it's getting a little too more too popular for my my taste these days. But what my point is, we don't have to add everything to the National Park Service to allow protection and to encourage visitation. No, that's certainly true. Um, unfortunately, people like national parks a lot more, and they like wildlife refuges. Unfortunately, or fortunately for those of us who who know about the wonders to be found in wildlife refuges, any. <sighs> Any feel for how many acres are out there that could be added to the park system east of the Mississippi? That's a tough question. I can't give you a number, but I can tell you that we are looking at current parks and saying, where are there missing pieces? Where are there parts that we felt should have been protected when the park was established or when we learned more? And how can we add that land into the national park? And I'll give you three examples. The first is Fort Monroe, which was the first uh, antiquities designation by President Obama back in 2011. And I had the pleasure of working on that designation for several years. And Fort Monroe has a fascinating history. It is where the very first people were traded into slavery in 1619. Flash forward to the Civil War, and that fort was under Union control. Three enslaved men sought their freedom at Fort Monroe. There was a brand new general, Benjamin Butler, there. It was his second day. These three men showed up. They wanted to be let in. He said, let them in. We'll figure out what to do with them later. 
their masters came and demanded them back. Well, the three enslaved men had said that they had been building fortifications for the Confederate troops. So Benjamin Butler told their masters, you don't get them back. They're contraband of war. Word got out and Fort Monroe became Freedom's Fortress where people really flocked to there. They knew once they were there, they could be free. When we established the park, it's a peninsula. There's historic buildings. So part of it is under the authority of the Commonwealth of Virginia. There's a star fort. And then there's a northern beach area that's under the jurisdiction of the Park Service. But those two pieces are not connected. So what we would like to do is expand that park, just about 40 acres, to connect those two pieces to make it a more unified and more protected national park. Another example, which I love, is the breakthrough battlefield at Petersburg. So when the Petersburg National Battlefield was created, there was a certain number of acreage. They did a general management plan, and they looked at a lot of other battlefield sites that were not in the boundary of the park. And they did a very, very methodical process where they held lots of listening sessions, they brought landowners in, and they said, we think your land is significant to the battlefield story. We'd like someday to buy the land. If you were willing to sell it, can we keep you on a list? And anybody who said, no, I don't want to be on the list, they were removed. Well, the Battle of the Breakthrough was never added. And the reason it's significant is that for years and years, Grant tried to take the presidency site in the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond. He never could. General Sherman broke through the Southern Front, split in two, and chased the Confederacy up towards Richmond, and hence the name the Breakthrough. Four days later, the war was over. That battlefield was not part of the national battlefield in the Park Service system. The American Battlefield Trust bought it with a number of easements and grants and fundraising, and they restored the site. And then NPCA was able to find a funder to purchase the site. And now we want to get it added to Petersburg National Battlefield. So there are important parts. You know, I got to see the breakthrough. I got to walk those embankments. I got to see some of the artifacts, but it's not open to the public. And we need to make that part of the history, which was basically the battle that ended the Civil War. It needs to be part of the National Park. Is it close to Petersburg? Yes. Yeah, it's, it's very close. Um, and we don't tell people because um, there's a lot of looters down there. They like no. to um, dig things up and sell things. And that's another reason why we need the Park Service ownership, because then there'll be people there. There'll be rangers there. But I've been very fortunate. I got to go to the Werewolf Comico. I got to go to the Breakthrough. Those are fascinating parts of our country's history. And we want everybody else to be able to go. And then finally, Tubman. When the Tubman designation was made, it was about 400 acres of a home where she was, she was born. Um, there are several other significant sites, places where her family members were sold to neighbors and enslaved. And so there's sites there that we would like to eventually add to the Tubman National Park. And that's on the eastern side of the Chesapeake Bay? Mm-hmm. It's in Cambridge, Maryland. And that visitor center is very innovative because it's a, it's a state and NPS-run visitor center, and it's fascinating. I was telling Michael, it's when you when you walk in, you start in the southern part of the of the property, and you start 
with her childhood. And as you work your way north, you find you're following her life growing into an adult. And then when you get to the back door into the woods are people running for, for freedom. Sounds like a great site. Michael, you've been working on this story for a while. What have you discovered across the, the, the eastern seaboard, I guess? Yeah, well, I think it goes back to one of the things that we said at the top of the podcast, which is that it's not about land for land's sake. There has to be a reason that you're trying to acquire and expand these parks. And so the Biden administration has, uh, in the last few months, unveiled this America the Beautiful initiative with a goal to conserve and connect uh, 30% of the lands, uh, of America's lands by 2030. And also, like you pointed out, Kurt, it's kind of easy to imagine lands in the West and, um, you know, just conserving some of these wide open spaces and boom, you've hit your 30% number. But that doesn't do any good for the millions of people and plants and animals on the East Coast. And so it's really about how can you create this connected web of of lands that actually um, reach your stated goals of protecting the wildlife, protecting water, and doing everything that we can to mitigate the climate crisis? Um, And what role is the Park Service going to, to play in that? And the administration doesn't have a specific list put out yet. It's, it's sort of going through this very bottom-up process. But what we did for the article was try to find parks in the East that have existing expansion authority. So they've already been authorized by Congress to uh, acquire more lands if you know they have the funding, if there's a willing seller, on and on. Because it can take, it can take a very long time to expand um, a new park through an act of Congress. And obviously 2030 is, is going to be here sooner than we think. So that was sort of the first part was looking at the parks that exist there. And then the other was how do you sort of be strategic about which lands are going to have the biggest benefit um, as far as being resilient to climate change. And the Nature Conservancy has built this really innovative tool called the Resilient Connected Lands Network that basically looks at lands that are the the geography of them is diverse. So they have uh, elevation changes that you can climb up to escape a flood, that animals can climb up to escape a flood. They have shade to escape heat. They have multiple food sources if one of them is running low one season. But then also critically, they're connected to each other. So as animals move to find new suitable habitats as as their current climate changes, uh, they need to be able to actually walk or crawl or, or whatever it is to get there. And it's harder to do that when there's a six lane highway running through the middle of the forest. So it's sort of looking at those connected um, or those resilient lands um, and overlaying them with parks that have an expansion authority. And, you know, it's very hard to, you have to read through all the legal language and the establishing legislations to, to figure it out. But we've been able to find several examples and we talked about Great Smoky Mountains earlier, you know, when it was originally authorized by Congress, they could grow up to 750,000 acres. Currently the park's at about 522,000 acres. And the gap is mostly because of private land and private landowners that was there when the park was established. And I I talked to the former superintendent of Great Smokies, Phil Francis, who has been on this podcast recently. And he told me, you know, there's there's something like 4,000 individual private landowners in, in and around the park. And he told me a story of of one person who called him and said, hey, Phil, I've got 3,000 pristine acres that I want to sell you. 
Phil said, okay, I'm interested. How much do you want? And the gentleman quoted him a price that was more than the entire park services land acquisition budget for the year. Um, so that's just one, you know, one landowner. Um, and if there's 4,000 of those in the park, you can kind of start to understand the complexity of, of the issue, but you don't always have to acquire, you know, these hundreds of thousands of acres and these huge tracks to actually make a meaningful difference at, Obed, Wild, and Scenic River in Northeastern Tennessee, they're looking to acquire just a 27 acre parcel of land. So, so very small that the park service describes as imminently developable and that a lot of um, developers are looking to, to basically turn into shops and, and houses and condos and things like that. And there's also some mineral exploration in the area. And so the park is looking for um, sort of a greater buffer uh, between you know, the exploration and the water, the river, um, and sort of avoiding contaminating that. So you can sort of start to see how there are different, different extremes. And it's really about looking for sort of smart, critical areas that you can, that you can conserve rather than just saying we need to conserve X number of acres just for the sake of it. Yeah. Pam, obviously, um, one way the park service can acquire lands is through the land and water conservation fund, which, um, finally has been fully funded um, thanks to the Great American Outdoors Act. How strategic is the Park Service being, do you know, in identifying those lands that, you know, Michael described as, as critical parcels as opposed to land for land's sake? Well, I think that they, the Park Service, both with the Land and Water Conservation Fund and then the deferred maintenance um, funding that they have, they are trying to be very, very mindful of how they spend that money. They want to make sure that they are spending it on lands that are high value in what they bring to the park and to the park system. So I think that the park service is, is very diligently trying to not just spend that money just to bring an acreage, but to be very mindful. And there is a, a process which some of us can find a little tedious where you know the park gives their list of what they think should be added. It goes to the regional office. The regional office turns it into their list, which goes to headquarters. Um, so we wish the park service was a little more nimble, but we do because we know that if land is on the open market and it's not purchased, it is by the park service, it could be purchased by a developer. And we see that on the East Coast often. So we are very sympathetic. We think the Park Service is trying to be very diligent in how they spend the money. They're trying to be fiscally responsible, but they um, I wish they were a little more nimble. And Pam, that's something that came up a lot in my reporting from talking with park managers and, and other sort of nonprofits and organizations around, um, around the East is this process from the Park Service can take an average of three to five years, according to the Park Service itself. And if you go up to somebody and say, I want to buy your house and we'll close in three years, that's probably not going to work, right? And so you can't always anticipate when opportunities are going to arise, just like the example earlier from Great Smokies. And so um, I think that's been a, a, a hurdle that you know, if you're going to hit in the context of this 30-30 goal, if you're going to hit that and the park service is going to play a big role, that's a hurdle that they're going to have to, to overcome. And the major challenge too is the personnel. Everybody in the park service is, is really wonderful and kind of it's a labor of love, but there's just not enough folks, right? They've lost something like a thousand personnel 
I, I think that's at the, at the Washington level over the last few years. And the Land and Water Conservation Fund, having guaranteed funding every year, is everybody I talked to said, it's a game changer. Park managers, everybody said it's a game changer and it allows parks to plan and, and have that certainty. But Phil Francis, you know, told me you might have uh, added more money, but you didn't add more people to actually do the work. And buying real estate is really complicated, especially when you have to sort of go through all of the due diligence that the park service requires. So that's that's another major challenge that the park service has to is going to have to sort of figure out how to overcome. We're talking today about expanding park acreage in the eastern half of the country with Pam Goddard from the National Parks Conservation Association and writer Michael Sparks, who is based in New York City. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. We are park stewards to ensure our most wild and historic places remain for generations to come, to safeguard our preferred arena for adventure, reflection, and inspiration. We donate 4% of our proceeds, and that's revenues, not profits, to support America's most wild and historic places. We are Wild Tribute, apparel for the parks. Find out more at wildtribute.com. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experiences in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. That's P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Okay, we're back talking with uh, Michael Sparks, a writer based in New York City who's been working on a story about expanding national parklands in the eastern half of the country. And Pam Goddard, the Mid-Atlantic Senior Program Director for the National Parks Conservation Association. Michael, here's a, here's a, a question I probably haven't posed to you yet. Um, any idea looking at those uh, establishment documents, how much acreage could there be in the park system that hasn't yet been added? You know, the answer is, is no, it's so hard to tell. Um, you know, these parks are, they are part of the National Park Service because each and every one is unique. And so like a lot of issues with the Park Service, there's not really a one size fits all answer. And the way that some of these boundaries are drawn, they're very different from place to place. So at Upper Delaware Scenic and Recreational River in sort of Western New York, I talked to 
one of the managers over there and she described the boundary to me as it looks like it was drawn by a crown and it, a crayon and it literally says in in the document yeah the park boundary starts from the branch of this river down to the railroad tracks over here and nobody has ever actually been out there and like surveyed it very very specifically to see where the park boundaries are and the you know the local communities have kind of figured out a way to to exist with that um, peacefully at Little River Canyon National Preserve in Alabama, the, the boundaries are very, very specifically defined, like down to the, you know, you're talking about down to the foot in the, in the enabling legislation. So it can be kind of challenging to understand how much room different parks have to grow. And, you know, to one of the points earlier, the goal is to protect these resources, not necessarily for the park service to have to acquire all of these lands. And so there are a lot of different ways that they can go about that. It can be federal acquisition of the lands, but it can also be working with a land trust um, to, to own the land and keep the land, keep it in like a conservation easement or having different partnerships like that, where you can consider that land protected and conserved, even if it doesn't actually, you know, sort of fall under the official authority of the park service. You know, one of the one of the interesting um, examples um, I found in talking to superintendents, I believe you, you followed up on, is the Blue Ridge Parkway. As I understand it, um, Phil Francis told me this, and uh, any acreage that touches the Blue Ridge Parkway boundary basically can be added if the Park Service can find a willing seller. Yeah, that's right. And I talked to Phil about that, and I also, you know, looked into that a little bit more. And it sort of touched the parkway have a willing seller and it also needs to meet the the park services requirements right it needs to have some kind of value to the park like it's a watershed it's a view shed it's something like that there can't be uh, encumbrances like a road maintenance fee that's a tax that's built into the land of the deed so there end up being a lot of very kind of specifics and, and hurdles that you've got to look into so it's not it's not so much a free-for-all as Assuming you meet the land parcel meets, you know, these 20 criteria, then we can talk about acquiring it. Um, and so that's also part of the reason why it, it can be challenging to put, put a specific acreage on the, on how much room there is to grow. Pam, I, we I touched think on that the park service, you know, is kind of, they're grappling with how to draw boundaries in legislation. And I'll give you two examples. I worked on a, a boundary adjustment bill to expand the Petersburg battlefield. I worked on it for six years, for six years, trying to get Congress to pass a bill that just gave us permission to find willing sellers to maybe buy and add land. And, and that's how long it takes to get a bill through Congress. So when we were working on the Tubman designation, the park itself is only about 400 acres. It's the childhood home of Harriet Tubman. But if you look at the legislative boundary, it's quite large. Someone in the Park Service drew a huge boundary. And I think they were thinking, we're never gonna have to go back and ask Congress for permission to add land to this park. But it did create a backlash because many people in Cambridge thought, the National Park Service owns my land now. I'm in the national, you know, there was fear. So I appreciate that the boundary was drawn the way it was and that I, if we ever want to add land to Tubman, we will not have to go through the Congress again. But I think we have to walk through the public what this means with the legislative boundaries. 
You know, Pam, earlier I mentioned the um, the prospect of adding a brand new national park in northern West Virginia. Whenever it seems a, a president designates a national monument, most of them are out in the West because that's where the federal lands are um, available. Are there areas elsewhere in the East that might make a great new national park? We, we are looking into a lot of different um, ideas of folks who want parks. I mean, the only, the one that's really has legs right now is the Rosenwald schools where uh, there's a special resource study that's already started. So it's going to be very specific and likely historic sites that would be added. But that's the best example I can give you of one that is ready for prime time. There are a number of organizations that have been working on doing a lot of the legwork, finding all of the schools, going to visit all of the schools and seeing if they would be amenable to being part of a park if they're in the right shape. But that does get back to Michael's comment about staffing. I mean, over the last decade, the Park Service has lost 14% of their staff. Visitation is up 20%. And when you're a park superintendent, you want your park to look good to visitors. So you are going to concentrate on having maintenance, law enforcement, to the detriment of your GIS people, your uh, interpreters, so um, your your people who manage the contracting. So we could give we could give a park tomorrow all of the deferred maintenance money, but if they do not have the staff to contract that out and run it, they cannot do it. So NPCA is thrilled that we work with Senator Warner and others to get the Great American Outdoors Act through. Uh, it's huge and it is a game changer, but now we need to do something equally as ambitious for park service operational budgets. We need to get the parks staffed up the way they should be, especially in light of the fact that so many more people are going to our parks. You know, I think we, we forgot one obvious choice, and that'd be the Chesapeake Bay National Recreation Area. Where are things with that, Pam? So um, it's a really exciting idea. And anybody you talk to cannot believe that the Chesapeake Bay does not have recognition under the Park Service as the Chesapeake Bay. It's it's like it's our Grand Canyon. It's a and I think people have trouble wrapping their minds around it that it's wa it's water based, it's not hugely land based, but um, we definitely support the CNRA, the CNRA, the Chesapeake National Recreation Area. I'm chairing the advocacy subcommittee, and there was just a meeting last Friday with Senator Van Hollen to tell us that they're going to have a draft bill out soon, hopefully within the month, that we can share with people. And what we would like to do is take this draft far and wide throughout the watershed so people understand what we're trying to accomplish and they can help us refine it and before a bill's introduced. And this is a different idea because it, it's kind of based on the Chesapeake Bay Gateways Program, which is a number of sites throughout the Chesapeake Bay watershed that tell different stories or offer different recreation. And the CNRA will unite all of these to tell the full story of the Chesapeake Bay. So there will be very little land acquisition. There might be a few sites, uh, historic sites, um, to anchor the park, but uh, we're very excited about it. And I think more and more in the Park Service, we're seeing this kind of co-management 
new idea of the park service doesn't have to own everything. They're going to partner with states and outdoor recreators and museums, outfitters to share the story of a region without owning every bit of land. I spoke with Senator Van Hollen's office um, for this article about the CRNA. And I think this is such a really good example of how in the East, it sometimes requires creative solutions. So like you said, Pam, you know, it's not about necessarily land acquisition, but it's about adding on that protection that being part of the park service provides. You know, the park service is in the forever business, right? That's all the way back to the Organic Act and preserving unimpaired for future generations. That's the protection that they can provide. Um, and so that partnership can be can be a really um kind of creative solution um, on the East Coast and around the Chesapeake to, to protecting that area, even without, you know, the Park Service taking on full ownership of, of those lands. You know, Michael, you mentioned the, the 30 by 30 initiative that the administration is pushing. Has that influenced the Park Service's approach to what lands it might want to obtain one way or the other? The administration has not yet released really specific details on it. They've released sort of some guiding principles and some sort of North Star ideas about how how they want this to run. And the really key thing from them so far is they want to be locally led. They want to work with state, local, city, tribal governments, so that sort of the best ideas kind of bubble up to the top. And they just recently opened, um, like a few weeks ago, opened up for comments um, on this. So people can go to regulations.gov and add their comments on what lands they want to add and, and do all of that. But it hasn't yet reached the Park Service and like come down as like sort of um, a more strategic guidance uh, for the Park Service and from Washington on what lands they want to do. It's still very much a bottom up process. And I suspect that will continue for, for a while, like Pam said, and that's really key because you want parks to, you want the ideas to be locally supported. It, you need to have the, the community support for that to happen. At the same time, I do think at some point, the administration and the park service sort of the general management is going to have to be a little bit more directed with, with sort of strategic imperatives on acquiring lands and the full funding of the Land and Water Conservation Fund sort of gives you that opportunity to reassess some of the park needs. And, and that's something that I heard from, from many park managers that I spoke with. Well, I find that kind of curious because, you know, climate change didn't just arrive with the, the Biden administration. It's been out there for a long time. The Park Service has been well aware of climate change. Um, they, they once had a climate change office. I don't know if that's still out there. Pam, any thoughts on this? I mean, obviously, climate change does not pay attention to boundaries, whether it's state, local, tribal, whatnot. And if um, we're going to plan for climate change, obviously we need those corridors where flora and fauna can move to if it gets too hot in their existing areas. You know, you, you add in how long it takes to add land to the Park Service, and then you throw in, we might have a new administration that has a different take on this. Any thoughts on whether the lack of a Park Service director during the Trump administration impeded the Park Service's movement on climate change and how to um, protect against it, how to, how to move forward with climate change in mind? I think we, we can all acknowledge that the previous administration put a real chilling effect on Park Service initiatives dealing with climate. 
Um, they did not talk about it. It was stricken from a lot of materials and websites. And not having a park service director for so many years was problematic because um, there was nobody in charge. And when President Biden was elected, it took a long time to get uh, Mr. Sams uh, confirmed and there was a void. And so now that he's on board, we're really excited and we hope that he grasps the reins and moves forward. I know that a number of parks on the park level, they're full aware of climate impacts. If you go to Assateague National Seashore for years, they, they finally had to have bathrooms and changing stations portable. And if a storm was coming, the superintendent had to order her staff out there to literally move bathrooms and move uh, changing rooms so they wouldn't get flooded. The same parking lot would get sanded over. And so when they did their general management plan, they, they moved that parking lot. I mean, they, they're learning and they're adapting and they know. Uh, Colonial National Historical Park in Fort Monroe faced flooding regularly. And so the parks at the park level know climate is impacting them. They know we need answers. And so we are hopeful with Director Sams that there'll be initiate, you know, some, some new ideas and freedom for the individual parks to take action. And if that includes um, increasing their boundaries to be more protective, so be it. I do know parks are also looking at, even though they might be established for historic reasons, like our battlefields, they are looking at wildlife support. You know, do they have a wildlife corridor? Do they have endangered species? Are they managing those? So I think as the East Coast gets more and more developed, wildlife corridors become more and more important. And then because we are we have so many highways, the work that's being done by my colleague Jeff Hunter and others on vehicle collisions and wildlife become important. So at the park level, the park superintendents, they know their parks. And when I'm working on any park battle, the first thing I do is go out and walk the park with the park service. They know that park better than me. I need to know what I'm advocating for. I need to see it. I need to feel it. And I think getting leadership in Washington, D.C. to allow them to really fight back on climate change will be very welcome at the parks. And I think back to, you know, certainly not having a director didn't help, but the the funding of the Land and Water Conservation Fund at, you know, at least $900 million a year. Now that's split up between a few different agencies, but having that funding is a real is a real game changer because that allows you to actually plan to acquire some of these lands that you might need to like canvassing. The managers in the parks, they know, they know what they need to do and they know what they need to acquire and they know what's coming, but they just don't have the funding or the personnel in some cases to actually plan for that. And so, you know, the, the funding of the conservation fund, the land and water conservation fund, it's not a silver bullet, it's not a cure-all, but it definitely helps. And it's gonna, I think you're gonna start to see the effects of that play out over, over the next few years here. And that was a fight. You know, when I was at National Wildlife Federation in 2000, we led an initiative um, called CARA, the Conservation and Recreation Investment Act. And it was spearheaded by Don Young of Alaska, of all people, and George Miller from California. And we got it through the house. And it was going to permanently fund LWCF. We didn't get it through the Senate. And I still have the hat because I was mad. That was the one that got away. Uh, we lost. So when... Um, the Great American Outdoors Act went through. I mean, it's huge. It, it, it's 
hard to explain that to some of my younger staff, how many, we had this law and we were supposed to get all this money every year and we usually got nothing. And now we get funding for all these, it's, it's huge and it's really exciting. And I'm very hopeful for how the park service is going to run with it. Pam, before we run out of time, let's, let's pull all the threads together into a very pertinent example of what's going on today. As traveler readers know, there's been a proposal to build a huge data digital data center um, on the boundary of Manassas National Battlefield. As I understand it, part of the land that they're eyeing is included in the enabling legislation from Manassas as, as far as expansion can go. And so somebody brought up on the traveler, well, why don't we buy that land with land and water conservation funds? Any thoughts on that? I do believe there's language that limits Manassas to be able to buy land. And I need to explore it further. But I just had been told about this, that even though it might be in their legislative boundary, there was some kind of writer or something that went through later that said no federal funds could be used or the Park Service didn't have the authority. So there, there, there is a, a, a problem there. Um, that said, we are trying to get that addressed. And what we do until we can get funding is we work with partners like American Battlefield Trust and Conservation Fund and Nature Conservancy to buy the land, to protect it until we can get it added to the park. And then we find we look for funders. We are deeply involved in that fight. And not only would that data center impact Manassas, it would also impact Prince William County's other national park, which is Prince William Forest Park. So it's a terrible idea. The the county has over 2,000 acres where they could build these data centers already. And it's it's led by a couple landowners who see big dollar signs and want to sell their land. And they went to the board of supervisors and said, change the zoning so we can sell our land. So we will push back and we will, in some of those instances, try to buy the land and get it donated to the park. That's what we did at Harper's Ferry at the entrance. There was a property that was going on the market and we found a private donor who wrote a big check and it's being remediated. There was a gas station there, but it will be protected. So we definitely want to make sure that if we can acquire land and get it into the park service, we will, or if we can protect it with easements or have one of our sister organizations purchase it and and preserve it, then we will do that. Michael, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at the Manassas situation and and find any um, silver bullets that could uh, prevent that data center from going in on the park boundary. Well, I haven't seen any silver bullets, but I have been down there myself. And, you know, just the ability to stand out there on the battlefield and, and sort of experience that history firsthand is really powerful and really impactful. And the idea of having, you know, these huge data centers and these huge, you know, technology buildings kind of like impeding the view and surrounding it, I think would just be a huge loss for, for everybody who wants to visit it for all of American history. And is that worth it to make a few guys rich? You know, uh, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And, and I did walk the property because, as I said, when we fight anything, we, we go see it. And there is a place where I am standing on the battlefield, and if I stretch my right arm out, I could hit the building of what the data center, where it would be. And there is an old gas line 
along a fence that separates the park service property with the private property. So we can't even plant trees there to shield it because of this gas line. So this would be right on top of the battlefield. We have no problem with data centers. We all use technology, but there's appropriate places for them. And Prince William County has over 2,000 acres they could put them. So we are pushing very hard on that to try to find a solution to protect the, 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 the Manassas battlefield. So when people go there, they can go back in time and experience the battlefield the way it was you know, back during the Civil War. Pam, Michael, it's been a great conversation. And um, frankly, I find it very exciting because, you know, when we talk about adding lands to the national park system, we do think about the West primarily because of uh, how built up the East is. But it sounds like there are some ideal possibilities out there in terms of history, in terms of culture, and in terms of uh, recreational outlets. Um, Look forward to your story, Michael. We'll catch up on this down the road, I'm sure. Thanks for your time today. Thank you, Kurt. Awesome. Nice Thank to you meet all. you, Michael. Yeah. Thank you both. And someday when um, Where Comico and Breakthrough are open, I'll let you know because you got to see them. It's, it's fabulous. Oh, yeah. Please do. I, please. I'll be there. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Watch for Michael Sparks' article on how the national park system can be expanded along the eastern seaboard later this week on National Parks Traveler. Also, Eric J. Toll will be bringing you a story from the Ho Rainforest in Olympic National Park that will give you some ideas for a trip later this year. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, These musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Split Beard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.